This episode is dedicated to Luca Alves and Andrew Kim for becoming our newest Southpaw supporters and helping to make this project possible. We are back with Southpaw Deep Space Nine, where we analyze Deep Space Nine and Star Trek from a socialist, communist, liberatory perspective, episode by episode. I'm watching DS9 with fresh eyes, and Scott is the veteran Trek fan who knows more context about the show. We are working our way through season one. We're trying to record right now, literally after our third massive shooting in 10 days which might add extra emotion to this episode, but we're all pros, so we'll get through this. And fortunately, we're going to have some help this week because we actually have a special guest, historian Dr. James Robinson. He's going to help us analyze the second to last episode of season one, Duet. James was previously on Southpaw episode 77, The Lost History of Worker Sports and the American Left. Welcome back, James. Hello. Great episode. Thank you. Appreciate it. James, can you tell the audience about your area of study? Sure. So my area of expertise is on the intersections between sports and social change and politics um, in the United States, 1920s through 1940s. Um, And, you know, in recent years, there's been a better effort uh, by the left at connecting the two. But uh, I go back and show that that effort was going on a a long time ago. People were making those connections, especially communists, socialists working in labor. You must be a fan of Beyond a Boundary by C.L.R. James. Oh, of course. Of course. That's a classic. (laughs) C.L.R. James is one of the main influences in me turning to the left. Nice. Yeah. I mean, I never thought I would be interested in cricket. um, And honestly, (laughs) took me a Bollywood movie to even understand the rules of the game. But yeah, it's it's fascinating, especially those uh, issues of anti-colonial struggle and the terrain of sports. And then how did you get into Star Trek? So that that's a hard question to answer because I've been watching Star Trek. Uh, started when I was a kid with Next Generation and have watched all the series, every one of them at least a couple times. I've watched DS9, my favorite, um, four times through. And, you know, it's just a core part of my being on <laughs> my Facebook. And, uh, I list my politics as Star Trek. So, <laughs> like, it's that it's kind of hard to separate. It's most of my life I've been into Star Trek. And it, I don't know, looking back, it probably did shape my politics. So, Scott. Yes. Can you tell us about this episode? Yes. So this episode called Duet or The Banality of Cardassia is Netflix (laughs) Order 18, production episode 19. It's considered by 
many people to be one of the best Trek episodes of all time, top five Deep Space Nine of all time, and often considered to be one of the great episodes of TV. Unlike most of the episodes that we will see in the first season, this episode contains no ABC subplots. So excuse the the long form explanation of how I will do this and content warning of very intense situations that will happen throughout. So be forewarned. We start, Kira and Dax are on on the deck a ship is ready to dock. Is Cobarian Rack Munis reveal they have a passenger on board with Kalinora. Kira is clearly affected. Kira wants to meet the the commander because Kalinora is is a disease that is connected to a mining accident at a Bajoran forced labor camp that Kira li- liberated. The survivors of that camp, Galatep are symbols of strength and courage, and she is excited to meet a Bajoran comrade from there. Kira gets to the med bay, and the person being checked is a Cardassian named Aritza. Kira calls Ops and says the patient, it must be a war criminal, and he tries to escape but is caught by security. The Cardassian feigns that he tried to escape because of Kira's hate in her eyes. This man is not on the list of escaped war criminals. Kira knows something is up. Cisco says she cannot do this on what grounds. And she says that by him having this disease, this disease as, is really only endemic to people who are at the Galatep mines when there was an accident. And then she says that when they liberated, there were bodies. And what Kira saw haunts her to this day. Bajoran death was the last step of how they were treated there. Women were sexually assaulted in front of their children, forced to watch their husbands be humiliated, starved to death, old people buried alive because they could not work. Cisco says he will talk to the guest and does not let a crying Kira go. Cisco meets the man who asks when he will leave, denies that he is Kalinor, has a similar disease, and denies being a Galatep and was a clerk. He definitely has Kalinor, it turns out, not this other disease. Bashir is positive. He was definitely at Galatep. The Bajarian minister of state calls Cisco. Minister wants Cisco to bring the man to Bajor for a tribunal trial and wants Kira to take over the matter. Cisco meets Kira. He wants Odo to do the investigation. Kira is very upset, and Cisco thinks that she is not being objective but promises as a friend that she will conduct as first officer. And Kira feels she owes it to the ones who moved too slowly and never moved again. And for all the Bajorans who can't ask to let a Bajoran to do the job, so Cisco allows. There is another Bajoran in the holding cell who seems to be a drunk guy. Odo does a background check and says the background check tracks. Kira sees Maritza, who makes a dig at the food, and Kira asks questions. Maritza claims that the prejudice that he is feeling. Maritza and Kira have a tete-a-tete. Maritza admits that he was a filing clerk at Galatep and says that he did not want to work and mentions Goldarheel. Kira thinks that he is a liar. Maritza denies the horrors, 
says that nothing really bad happened. He talks of Goldarheel, victim blames Kira, and says that Cardassians left the camp for politics and says Kira does not want truth but vengeance. We then see Gold Ducat and Cisco talking. Gold Ducat wants the man freed. Cisco wants to know who the person is, and the Cardassians downplay the pain and want the Cardassians to be released. They are still the the Cardassian politic is to deny that what they did and their oppression of the Bajorans was genocide, war crime, or anything of that nature. Dax and Kira meet and Kira ponders if really she does want vengeance and she that she says that she wants him punished, whether he was a file clerk or not. To be at a labor camp is guilt. Dax says vengeance is not enough. She meant Kira getting revenge won't be enough for her, just to clarify. Yeah. Yeah. The info says that Maritza was a file clerk and Intel supposedly checks out. So they but they find a photo from Galatep to confirm. This is not Maritza. They have someone else in there. It is not Maritza in captivity. It is Gold Darheel, the butcher of Galatep. Kira confronts him, and he quickly acts bold and nasty. He says, there were so many of the things that I did, and you can only kill me once. Kira is aware of this and not upset about this. The war crime tribunal is put together for him. He claims that there was no war. That it was just doing what he had to do. He looked forward to getting caught. He loved being the butcher. He did what had to be done. He felt that blood made them clean, the Cardassians, that is. He admits to it all and looks forward to the tribunal as they cannot undo what he did to the Bajorans, as the dead will still be dead. Odo tries to help Kira, and Kira wonders how many escaped Cardassian war criminals are at large. Odo figures something is not right. Because earlier, Darheel recognizes that Kira was a resistance fighter, which Darheel would not have known. She comes back to try to find out, and Gull comes off as a zealot and is pushing her. Galatep survivors come to Deep Space Nine. Quark shows empathy for like a little second and makes a joke about selling stuff. Odo looks into it more and more. Bashir looks into the info, and Dukat calls and says, Darheel is dead. He's buried in a monument. This is a plot to make Cardassians look bad, and gives Odo intel. Darheel calls Kira a terrorist and asks how many innocents Kira killed. Nothing justifies genocide. What you call genocide, I call a day's work, Darheel says. But Odo realizes that this man wanted to be caught and he receives this death certificate of Goldarheel. Goldarheel is dead. And Goldarheel wouldn't have had Kalinora because he was receiving some sort of war trophy when that was happening. He never got the disease. He was not there. This person clearly retired recently and got his affairs in order and got caught on purpose. Bashir realizes and reveals that this person is Maritza and got his face changed. Kira tricks him into admitting that he is Maritza. He reveals that he couldn't bear the pain, that even though he was a clerk, he couldn't bear the atrocities and realizes that Cartasia has to admit their guilt 
And he feels that as this face, he has to martyr himself to create some sort of healing for what they did that he cannot live with. Kira cannot allow this and lets him leave. But as he is leaving, the Bajoran man from the holding cell kills Maritza, stabs him dead. Kira says they got the wrong person, and the Bajoran says he is a Cardassian. All right. So heavy stuff there. You know, the wildest thing about this episode was it was written as a bottle episode. What does that mean? They tell them, you know, we don't want to build sets. Um, let's have a low budget episode where we don't need to spend a lot of money. And those often end up being the best Star Trek episodes. Easily. Yeah. In in Star Trek lore, they have the bottleneck episodes. And then sometimes they have in other shows, they have um, episodes where you just get someone in a room. It's just a, a way to save money for the finale often. Yeah. Starting from the beginning, the scene with Kira and Odo chasing Maritza, Kira says he's a war criminal. Then shortly thereafter, the scene with Kira and Sisko drives home the direct parallel to the Holocaust for the audience. Right away, they're telling us this is a political episode, and they're going to be exploring what all of this means, along with asking us to question and challenge our beliefs also raising questions that we can't really answer. James, what are your initial thoughts about the premise of this episode and how well the Cardassian Empire maps onto actual world history, especially when talking about planets rather than regions on the same planet? Yeah, and that, that's a great question. You know, the at at the fundamental level, I think the episode is what happens when war crimes go unpunished. You know, the episode isn't about Nazi Germany or Imperial Japan because those countries lost wars. And at least the top level people were put on trial, even if the mid to low level ones were allowed to continue or were even used by the U.S. during the Cold War as anti-communist. So this episode is about how imperialism goes largely unpunished. Um, you could think about the U.S. and Vietnam or Iraq or much of Latin America. The biggest one in my mind is Indonesia. So men like um, McNamara or Rumsfeld, you know, are allowed to die peacefully in bed. The Dulles brothers. Yeah, the Dulles brothers are another great example of no nothing ever happens to them. They never have to answer for their crimes. Some never die like Kissinger. <laughs> yeah, seriously, I saw him made a comment today. I'm just like, seriously, dude, you're still around. Um, the writers probably were more thinking about um, European uh, imperialism. So British Empire in Africa or India, Belgians in the Congo, French in Vietnam or West Africa, or even imperial Germans in Nambia. I think the question that the character of Maritza brings up is, can a defeated empire actually reform if it never faces what happened? No. <laughs> I think that's what the show is heading towards. Um, so in the show, Cardassia is ruled by the central command, that is the military, it's the real power, and they made a strategic decision to withdraw from Bajor. It doesn't really answer what it did during that 40-year occupation, where they strip-mined the planet and used Bajorans as slave labor. Um, 
So what happens, I think the closest thing we can think of is probably the U.S. withdrawal from Vietnam or Iraq, where, you know, they withdraw, but the empire is still intact. And that's true of Cardassia, too. Scott, I know this is an episode you were both looking forward to and dreading. Yeah, so I was introduced to this episode because I I started watching Deep Space Nine when it came out. Then the first few episodes, I was like, I don't know. And then I was in Hebrew school, and the teacher of my Hebrew school, like I, I came from a Reformed Jewish background, so we would just go like learn stuff until we had our bar mitzvah or whatever. And the person teaching our our class was not only a rabbi, but he was a lifelong trekker. I mean, he knew episodes of the original series front to back, back to front, and was often told to stop using Star Trek to explain Jewish issues and Jewish stories. And he was like, well, actually, I have the perfect thing. So he had us there. I'm like 14 years old. I I think I had just smoked some weed with my <laughs> friends. We're in the synagogue and he shows us this episode. And every once in a while, we're stopping to to discuss what's going on. And I'm being like, stop pausing. Can we discuss later? Like, we need to just like get this. And then by the end of the episode, we're all crying and we're all just like, like, oh, I see. And then <sighs> pushes into the narrative. When he presented it, he was like, this is about the Nazi war criminals that escaped to South America and other areas. And this is about Eichmann and, and yada, yada. And I also knew that this episode was, was directly inspired by Man in the Glass Booth which is like a play about, you know, Nazis and Eichmann and right. st stuff of that nature. So that was my experience. And I was dreading it because this is an episode that I, even my last couple of rewatches, I was like, I, this is such a painful episode to do. You know, I watched this episode with my dad, my dad who got me into Trek, you know, my, my dad's been gone many years. So it was just a lot for me. Um, but yeah, I, I knew that if I had a chance, this could be a real opportunity to unpack a lot of these things and help my own growth and and navigate my positionalities and all this. Yeah, because I'm selfish in trying to <laughs> better myself. Unlike the writers of DS9, for most Americans, when they think of fascism and oppression, they immediately think of Nazi Germany. Right. But because we are talking about space and planets, when you think about a more powerful alien force you've never seen before come to settle on your home world, this to me more resembles colonialism. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. To James's point, you can even look at Vietnam then from a colonialist lens. But even the term empire in Trek conjures parallels to colonialism. And I'd say the way Western history is taught and presented it's much more like how Cardassia teaches history because it's made heroes of the colonizers. For Nazis to be the only parallel Americans can draw means everything else has been written like the great history of the Cardassian Empire. That's the horror for me. The U.S. is looking at Nazi Germany when they, as far as an alien force, settling, occupying, 
genociding the quote unquote natives, which is a line we've heard in DS9, Mm -hmm. that resembles the history of the US. And it blows my mind. Most Americans, even some DS9 fans aren't aware of that. Right. I remember the first time I was talking to someone at a party and for them to consider that the the regime change wars and the assassination of people in our name, some might look at us in that other way. And and someone called me a postmodernist <laughs> F word, you know, the slur. Wow, that's very specific. I know. And I was like, all right, fuck you. But to understand that, yeah, when I was 13, the only context I could know was Hitler. Right. Because that was all I knew. I didn't know about the other contexts and other parts of the world where people experience these horrors. And when I was watching this episode, I kept on thinking of this quote by uh, Fanon, you know, colonialism only loosens its hold when the knife is at its throat. Mm, right. So when Cardassia, they did, the knife wasn't at its throat when they, when they left the camps, it was strategic. That's a, you know, that's, that's a great, great comparison is the Algerian experience um, where, you know, nothing ever happens to De Gaulle or any of his generals. Um, They die old men. Um, and they never answered for what they, what happened in Algeria and that colonial experience where it's a total war and sometimes civilians are targeted that comes up during the episode when they're having that tit for tat, um, where when he's trying to play the, the character of Darheel, he brings up how many civilians did you kill? And Kira says, I don't know. I, I didn't keep counting. And he's sort of implying, no, you're the real war criminal for um, targeting innocence. And she says, well, you know, they shouldn't have been there. Coincidentally, you were talking about De Gaulle in Algeria and the, oh. <laughs> De Gaulle, yes. And then you have Gaulle as the military rank for the Cardassians. So it's just kind of right. like a nice wordplay that I don't think it was intentional, but it does have these kind of unconscious historical callbacks. Now, with Cisco, we see a conflict because he's not part of the Cardassian Empire, but he's also not part of the Bajoran Provisional Government. He's a company man for the Federation. So what is the role of the Federation here? Are they supposed to be neutral? And why are they even involved with Bajor in the first place? And can they even be neutral when they have Federation interests in the region, not only between Bajor and Cardassia, but also between Bajor and the Federation? I mean, from the show, I always got the impression when when the Cardassians withdrew is from for some larger strategic position, but once the wormhole is discovered, they they would they're ready to come right back. The only thing stopping them is the Federation. Um, they don't want a larger war with the Federation. And, but then, you know, we're, we are dealing with post-occupation issues. And 
Cisco is sort of this administrator who he gets the point, but he also needs to hold that we there's a process we have to go through. We can't just rush to, um, you know, kill the guy because it looks like he was there. And he's still he's still very much the chaotic, good, lawful, good character that he is in this first season where he's like, we have to do things by the book. We have to see this. We have to check all these boxes. And he's also, yes, acting in the best interests of the Federation, but the Federation are supposedly peacekeeping and helping them build post-war. And if you want to see like the sort of idea of like NATO post-World War II or something, the illusions are thick. They are thick illusions. So then what was the Federation doing during the war? So at points, the Federation has wars of their own with Cardassia, uh, but but Bajor is just behind the lines. And there's a TNG episode where they're talking about Bajoran refugees who've been forced to flee. And, and the Federation attitude is kind of like you see American attitudes towards uh, refugees throughout the world. Like, oh, isn't it sad? But what are we going to do? So it was basically during the war, they didn't help out much, but once it was over... They helped a little bit, in, but also Bajor didn't want to join the Federation. Also, you have to join the Federation to get help? Sort of, yeah. There's some issues. There's some problems. And we we meet the Cardassians in the next generation, and they're like these antagonists. And we do meet a couple Bajoran characters. And in fact, Kira's character was originally supposed to be another character that appeared in Star Trek The Next Generation, but that actress chose to not be in it. But yeah, so we we learn of the Bajorans and the complex nature in The Next Generation. And uh, going back to your question, Sam, about what the Federation was doing, uh, not to give you, I'll try not to spoil it, but there's larger border issues between the Federation and um, the Cardassians that are going to be addressed as the series go on. They're much beyond Bajor. A note to our loyal listeners, if you love the Southpaw Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. This will give you access to exclusive bonus content, as well as our private chat group on Discord. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. When you have two countries with asymmetrical power, so in this case, we have the Federation, which is not a country, but you have this organization that is much more powerful than Bajor. Can you ever have neutrality? Yeah, I mean, there. when Cisco is originally sent to be, you know, the caretaker of running the space station. His mission is that he's trying to prepare Bajor to eventually enter the Federation. So that means you've got to deal with all these different factions. You've got to make sure that they don't become a religious, uh, you know, driven society. Uh, you've got to help them rebuild. So they're absolutely not neutral. And um, they're also have an interest in keeping the Cardassians from returning because since the wormhole is now this strategically important resource. 
Yeah, and it's quite good for the Federation to have a way station right in front of a wormhole where the beings inside the wormhole believe that Cisco is uh, an emissary to them. I think caretaker is the perfect term then, where it's like, no, we're not here to be neutral. We're not here to really take over either. We're thinking of it as something we have interest in, how it develops. Yeah, that's a good, I think that's a pretty good way of putting it. The point that was raised about the wormhole, it seemed like also when they discovered that, that not only piqued the interest of the Cardassians again, but it seemed to make the Federation even more interested in this region. So the two superpowers in the area both got even more interested and now care even more about Bajor. Yeah, it went from being a backwater where they don't even care, really, except for it's sad, to now it's it's a very strategically important place. It's the the pathway to this vast, unexplored, who knows what's on the other side of this wormhole. Now we get into the investigation of Maritza, the filing clerk, as a possible war criminal. But this also raises the question, are you guilty even if you're a low-level worker just following orders? Do crimes have to be direct? This is supposed to be a parallel to Adolf Eichmann's trial in Israel, according to some of the show notes. But I think something we can think of now with that parallel that people who were initially watching this episode weren't probably bringing up or thinking about was how there's a trial about an oppressor where everyone is saying, you should know better. And if you're oppressing, you would know all the while seemingly oblivious to the occupation of Palestine and that parallel. Scott, I know you have thoughts here. Oh, I absolutely do. And and these are thoughts that have gotten me uh, excommunicated from certain members of my family because even the most supposedly virulent progressive or liberal, um, sometimes when you s- just say the word Palestine or say the word Israel-Palestine or conflict, um, you get this Pavlovian you know, response of, oh, well, we don't talk about that or don't make people upset or, or no, no, no. But yeah, it's ve- you, I cannot look at the lens of these trials with my politics now and my belief of of liberation and freedom and mutual aid and all of these things and be like, yeah, there's a lot of hypocrisy here that we're taking these people, we're putting these people on trial for war crimes on land that we've taken, the people Israel. And they're it becomes this unpopular thing. And Hannah Arendt, when she was writing The Banality of Evil, was very unpopular amongst some Zionists and other Jewish writers because she felt they felt that she shouldn't um, talk about or have any criticism of how the Palestinian people were treated or the fact that she didn't totally see an evil person in Eichmann, which is not the same case with Maritza, just saw someone that was doing their job. But but what Eichmann's job was, was fucking murder. And But yeah, I think, and earlier to what you're saying is, can, can you, would Maritza as the file clerk be guilty of just because he was a fire clerk? Yes, 
Absolutely. Yeah. And he was guilty. And just uh, it's a little bit different because when he realizes what he did and what he allowed and how painful and scary it was, he did uh, admit to the horrors of it. He realized it wasn't just a job, that it was something else. And even developing, working on the show with you, I've been like really scared to talk about the interplay between, you know, being a leftist Jew and be believing in liberatory politics and also talking about the, you know, occupation of Palestine. And if it's, if it's unclear, I'm against it. And because I feel like that if your politics lead you here, if your intersectionality leads you here, if your positionality leaves you here, that is a logical conclusion. Yeah, Maritza at the beginning says he didn't even want to be in the military, so he's probably drafted, and he's simply working the filing system. But here's the thing. He made the occupation more efficient, and... um Probably some of the stuff he brought up about presenting reports and all to Goldar Heel is probably based on things that happened. Um, so he's driven by guilt, the, the trauma of those survivors and the war guilt of those who didn't even want to be there but did the things anyway. He's sort of a whistleblower from within the system, almost like a Chelsea Manning, although, you know, goes about it a little differently. Um so he lives with that war trauma, and ultimately, he's trying to die. He wants to die for a purpose and hope that that military dictatorship will fall. Um, because even if he's eventually exposed, um, which, you know, if it actually went to a trial, they could have said, this isn't called Gar- Gold like, the guy's dead. <laughs> um, but it would have gotten the ball rolling. So it doesn't seem like he thinks the Cardassian system is reformable from the inside. Um, And, you know, he probably gets a pass ultimately, even though he is partly guilty because he was trying to expose the crimes in a very public way. And he says in when he's Goldarheel in this line of great Cardassian monologues that you'll see in this show, how taking Bajor's resources was the moral position for Cardassia, um, which is probably something he heard Goldarheel say. So, you know, I I think these absolutely he is partly guilty, even if he wasn't pulling the the trigger, even if he wasn't running it. Even these uh, little Eichmanns make um, genocide just as possible as the actual soldiers. Yeah, so I think it separates the guilt from feeling bad about your actions, right? Just because you feel bad about your actions or you show humanity or remorse or that you felt morally affronted by certain actions does not take away guilt, right? They're two different things. You could be guilty and also conflicted and feel terrible about what's happening. Exactly. And I think from today's eyes, we can also see that yes, you can be oppressive and not know it. Going back to the example that Scott gave about Israel and Palestine, but you could also think about every documentary that the U.S. History Channel makes, right? Yeah, right. About how heroic the Americans were defeating the Nazis, right? 
or just in general, that whole American exceptionalism and not realize that you're oppressive, but they're pointing the finger at the Nazis for them not being able to see that they were being oppressive, right? So it is possible. And and just like happened in real history, your Maritzas of the world, your low-level Nazis, um, they were able, they never faced any re- repercussions at all. Um, your low-level to mid-level guys continued on in West Germany because they were anti-communists. Maybe even some of the higher level people, right? Yeah, that's true. They ended up in NASA. <laughs> oh, yeah, this is really very heavy stuff. And I'm pretty sure my my Hebrew school teacher would not be happy with me. I remember. Oh, no. Well, I mean, look, again, this is a long time ago, but even this reformed liberal school, some people, the the mere mention, I was indoctrinated to this certain idea that took a very long time to undo. It was one of the last steps in in fully realizing my morals and ethics and values of intersectionality and liberation and just practice, which is the framework that I practice social work in in all of these these natures. And yeah, the idea that the people that are putting Eichmann on trial possibly being oppressors as well is is was definitely not a suggestion thought by these writers and also i don't think the bajorans are a they translate to just be you know jews that there there are many different archetypes of of people yeah now the interrogation between kira and marissa was its own sort of trial but also marissa wanted a trial so when we think about the Nuremberg trials and the Eichmann trial also, they work as a type of cover in certain ways because it says the oppressors were all punished when in reality, to James's point, you had a lot of Nazis rewarded by the US and the West with jobs and a new life, not only to help them in science, but to help them fight communism. So the episode was all about the symbolic power of trials, or at least that's what Maritza believed, that they would have some kind of symbolic power to change things. But that symbolic power of trials can also work as theater to also cover up other crimes. And also like possible use of those sort of things, like was it um, Operation Paperclip? Mm -hmm. And like you know, Nazis being taken over to America to to help build spaceships and shit. Like, yeah, our hands are not clean, and the the analog of the Federation is as the American Empire. Also, you may find is not always as clean as you think it is. I feel like Operation Paperclip is just like the beginning. Like when you're looking into this, you look into that first. Oh yeah, and then you think that's it, but then as you dig about like what happened after the Nazis, then I realized, oh shit, they got into you know high positions in the Olympic Committee, NATO, some were in Latin America helping with the death squads, and then you had a bunch of them sent to the US as anti-communist spies, and then you have like other ones involved with like European mafia and the church helping with like anti-communism and such. It was really bad. And there's like whole books talking about how like the Dulles brothers were like trying to 
get to certain areas at the closing of World War II first before the Soviets got there because they were trying to like rescue some of these Nazis before they got caught by somebody else, right? Yeah, and you know, some of the, um, beyond the Nazi example, some of the other aspects of the Cold War, like um, that the U.S. supported and end up dying as old men, like Franco or Soherto and down in Indonesia, who have a lot of blood on their hands and never once answered for what they did. Um, you know, they, these, like somebody like Maritza, who is a low-level person, he's an instructor at a military school, teaches filing, but, you know, he's in, he was involved in a genocide. He was involved in the labor camp, even if it's that banality, and he never had to face anything, and he realizes that. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's an interesting question, is what do you do with people who never faced any consequences and are, in fact, still supported um, through... Like, how do you remember that? And how do you come to um, some sort of conclusion? How do you how do you meet that? Because, the you know, people like, you know, you could name Turkey, British Empire, American Empire, whatever else. They never, never have come to terms with these things. Korea is another example where you had these people who were collaborating with the Japanese to help commit a lot of these atrocities in Korea. And then when the Japanese left, instead of being tried and punished, the Americans put them in charge of the new government. So literally were rewarded. And then what happens? Right. Which actually in Korea, in certain periods, when they found that certain families or certain people benefited from Japanese occupation and from collaboration, like you actually did get your land taken. Yeah, how do you know how that process came about? Like, was there a trial or was it a law passed or what? I mean, initially, when the Japanese occupation ended, you had several versions of the provisional government. I don't know what their process was, but they already knew who the collaborators were. Right, sure. So they started taking their land, which is funny. It's like they weren't even communist governments. So a lot of times when a Korean's like, oh, the communists took our land, it's like they're kind of telling on themselves because <laughs> those are the provisional governments taking your land. Then you're kind of ratting yourself out saying that you came from a family of collaborators, right? So there was that initial period of that happening. Later on, there was the Truth and Reconciliation Act. And then from there, one of the things they were looking at were collaborators. So a lot of that happened after that. So Maritza wanted something like that. Um, now, the question is, how effective is that? Like, there's a truth and reconciliation going on in Canada r right now over um, First Nation genocide. But And you could, I don't think we'll ever see anything like that in the U.S., at least not anytime soon. But, like, how much does it help? I'm not sure. America is Cardassia. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> We, as the audience, think Marissa was actually Galdar Hill all along, which takes away from the nuance and can come off as cartoonish and boring even. But the acting from the guest star, Harris Yulin, I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, kept me riveted. Oh, yeah. This is also the parallel to the book, turn play, turn movie that Scott alluded to, The Man in the Glass Boots. So because of those parallels and comparisons, I think that's why we're drawing so much 
connection to the Nazis and to Germany and to the Eichmann trial. Now, something I learned from this episode is how the Bajoran culture changed because of the occupation. What we know of the culture so far is what we've seen from Kira and others, but this is an adapted culture from the occupation. Right. And this is an important point because in the fire of colonialism, you sometimes don't even know what you've lost. We look at a racialized culture and can think, oh, this is how that culture has always been. Young people, even within that community, can think that of their own culture, but what they think is their culture is often the byproduct of colonialism. That was a little small line in this episode, but I think it's an important one to think about, that often culture, especially for racialized people, is the byproduct of colonialism or occupation or war. Absolutely. So in the TNG episode where they introduced the Bajorans, uh, Captain McCard says that they had a flourishing civilization when humans weren't even standing upright yet. And, you know, they were second to none in philosophy and art. Um, but then this occupation happens. There's um, some novels. There's three novels that deal with how the occupation happens and the suppression of literature and um, sort of a casting away of old um, caste systems that which will be explored later in the series. So, uh, you know, thinking about the character of Kira, so Kira comes around to killing somebody after the war is over, is wrong. So when Maritza is killed, she says, you know, it's it's not enough that he's for him to die just because he's a Cardassian. But she probably would have been okay with that murder had it happened during the occupation. And she probably did do murders like that during the application. Absolutely. Um, and she comes around that she's trying to break the cycle of trying to destroy that old system. She fought in the resistance since she was 12. She took it, it took everything she could, yet she does feel bad. She does mention that she feels bad about killing the civilians, but it's an anti-colonial war, and that's just a fact. You need to do really ugly things to uproot the colonial regime. Um, and, yeah, killing civilians, you know, planting bombs. Like, if you've ever seen, what is it, the Battle of Algiers? Like, yes, right. They're shooting cops <laughs> like like they're not, you know, they're setting up bombs in cafes like when you're talking about an anti-colonial war, like every, everybody's a target. And it's hard, it's even hard for me to picture them doing DS9 just a few years later after 9-11. I think it would be very hard to do. Yeah. Like when they're one of the main characters is self-described as a terrorist. Now, after confronting Maritza of being Gaul Darheel, we see Kira go to Odo for solace. This is something that's happened several times in season one. It very much feels like Kira is closest to Odo, but not only feels like that, but she basically has said that in other episodes. They also have similar personalities and dispositions. This all makes me think Odo's past is more complicated than we think especially from this episode where we clearly see Kira hates anyone 
associated with the crimes of Cardassia, even if you're a file clerk. But we also see Kira likes, trusts, and feels a kinship with Odo, at least in this season. I don't know if that changes later on. There's even a line about how they both know how bad Cardassians are. This is a long aside to say if we are to trust Kira, Odo is not simply a reformed baddie. The character, the mystery of his past, and his relationship with Kira and even other Bajorans make Odo really complex and a really interesting character for me. The subtle performance I also want to give a shout out for by the actor who plays Odo was also excellent in this episode. Rene Arbutish was. Okay, because <laughs> I didn't want to say that name. <laughs> because he also drove home that he was not really a friend of the Cardassians either. In some of the lines he says, but also just some of that understated performance, you could tell he did not like them. You know, so he was he's a cop and he was trying to live up to his notions of justice earlier on in the season. You know, he's coming up against... He's, he's got to play by the rules, and the Federation does justice a little differently. Yet, he recognized the brutality and lack of justice during the occupation, and I think Kira respects that. Um, and, you know, without giving anything away that happens later, like, they uh, both lived, they saw the occupation, and the rest of the senior staff, you know, they didn't see it up close. They saw the aftermath. They did have a reveal this season that Odo, for some part of his life, was held in captivity in some kind of lab by the Bajorans also. So that makes it even more complicated. Yeah. Is his role the same role that Worf had in The Next Generation, like the chief security officer? Sort of, except for you got to remember Deep Space Nine is more like a town than a ship. Um, So he's more like the local cop then Worf would have been like, you know, your bouncer or whatever. <laughs> As my friend Alan texted me, he's like, oh, I, I always called Odo the thin goo line. So <laughs> <laughs> I like that scene when he's talking to Goldicott and and he's pretty much like to Goldicott, like, dude, you're a creep. I don't really want to <laughs> talk to you, but you're my old boss, so I'm going to pursue this this thing yeah we played one game of that game you like and you cheated dude yeah like i'm not gonna let you get away with that and i think scott and i have talked about how there is no real parallel to odo in real life because he is so complicated even his role as a cop or how he even carries himself as a cop because more than the law he has his own moral code that he goes for so in this episode especially that scene you were talking about james What's also unrealistic or unlike the cops we know here is that Odo seems like a type of person who would also just as likely arrest somebody above him. <laughs> it seems like even the fact that Gal Dukat, who I guess was technically his boss, the fact that Dukat was cheating really bothered Odo. Right. But he is one of a kind on the show, right? He's the only shapeshifter. So he's kind of in his own bubble and just like, I guess, following his own thing. He is sort of like the outsider. He's coming at his own sense of justice because, you know, he d- he does have a sense of what's right and wrong, and, but he also has an innate drawing towards order, and he doesn't like disorder. Yeah. So, you know, and the occupation is messy. The occupation involves 
areas of gray of, you know, there's black and white of justice, but then there's a lot of how do you operate in an unjust system. Later on, Maritza pretending to be Goldar Heel. I also like that name because of pro wrestling, where you yeah. obviously know this is the bad guy, right? He's that Dar Heel. <laughs> but pretending to be Goldar Heel gives this speech about how Bajor was just a resource for the Cardassian Empire, which you alluded to, James. And the looting was necessary for capital accumulation for the empire. The destruction was a byproduct. This is a really clear and succinct explanation of colonialism. Yeah. I mean, that's absolutely how empires, European empires, and to a certain extent, if you think about how the United States expands as the settler colonial state, yeah, it's absolutely one of extraction um, and capital accumulation and um, what historians call the great divergence of how Europe got rich at the expense of the rest of the world. We need these things stuff and who cares what happens yeah today that form the descendant of those old european systems is global systems of, of trade um and where you know even though the british don't rule nigeria they're still doing extractive um operations and say chocolate um cocoa growing where there's these systems still operating so in the other places in the show, I think they discussed this in the TNG episode Chain of Command Part 2, when Picard is basically tortured. Um, his torturer says that, you know, Cardassia is resource poor. They've had famines. So in order to get past that, they conquer other planets and take their resources. Um, and, you know, that kind of comes back to, you know, societies that come from poverty which at one point europe was uh, a poor part of the world but then they have this age of discovery and then international capitalism that goes into this really uh extractive sense of of international empire um that uh you know i don't know if it's a direct correlation there if what the writers were trying to go for, because they were trying to do a few things. I think they were trying to make some kind of commentary on colonialism. They could have also been thinking about the Yugoslav civil wars that were happening at the time that this episode came out. I think so, definitely. And the Bosnian War was winding down at that point. If you love the Southpaw Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. It'll help us supplement the cost of running this project, the incredible time and energy we put into it seven days a week. And you'll be giving us some breathing room, not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also to expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. And this is an episode where even though the writing was good, bad performance, bad acting could have ruined the whole thing, right? Right. It kind of acts as a steroid where the acting can make something even more ridiculous. Like some of the speeches by Maritza, 
Maritza makes that makes that episode. I would say there's only one bad performance in this whole episode, and it was by the guest star who was playing Kanon, who was the one who stabbed Maritza. That was bad acting, yeah. Oh, yeah. When I saw that, I was like, oh, this is typical DS9 season one <laughs> guest star acting. And so because the rest of the show was so stellar, it stuck out even more than it would have in other episodes. It just stuck out like a sore thumb. Yeah. I mean, I guess the only thing I would say in defense of that is he was supposed to be a drunk and he was acting like he was drunk. Um, he's like, ah, the Kardashian, I'll stab that dude. <laughs> but it seemed like a drunk Shakespearean actor. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, that that part, it's like, okay. <laughs> he just goes up to him and stabs the dude. It's like, <laughs> it's like, I don't uh I guess it does happen, but I mean, you know, the guest star who was playing Maritza, he did the best he could with that staffing, but you know, <laughs> it almost took me out of the scene. But now let's talk about that performance because we don't really talk about the performances too much in our commentary. But let me start with you, Scott. What did you think about the performances? We already talked about Odo, so performances of the guest star and especially uh Kira. Well, Nana Visitor, the actor that plays Kira, I think her depth in this episode and her ability to talk about the pain and the trauma and so succinctly talk about what she saw. And like I was I was texting you today, like I'm at work, like trying to just get a couple scenes, rewatch a couple scenes, and I'm like crying, especially when she was like you know, I'm do I owe this to the ones who moved too slowly and never moved again. Like her performance, which just is like two steps away of overperformance, just pushes the lines and shows her pain and her growth as a person who's seen so much at at her age. And yeah, we were talking earlier about like what these experiences would have been like if 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 they if Cardassia didn't come would have been everything everything was changed because of colonialism and and greed and violence and uh, yeah that line yeah I mean it's like you said very spectacular and she's able to sell when her character's growth. And by the end of the episode, you know, in the beginning, she's saying, you know, I want this guy to be guilty so I can get some sort of revenge. And then Dax is sort of like, well, is that really what you want? And, and, you know, she could have easily been like, fuck you, dude, you weren't there. Um, But by the end, she's like, okay, I see what you're trying to do, Maritza. You really want Cardassia to answer for these crimes. And you know what? I'm not going to let your... Like, that's a noble um, thing, and I'm not going to let you die, um, which I feel like is some, like, sort of character development, even within just the episode where she starts and where she ends, um, that, like, I'm, like yes, Cardessia has some crimes to answer for, but you killing yourself to get it is not the way. Like, you should, you need to be alive, and we can do something. I don't know what, but, um, so yeah, it's just Nana visitors just nails it in this episode. The reveal towards the end 
that the filing clerk wanted to be punished and for Cardassia to admit to its guilt. Not going to lie, my jaw dropped and my eyes watered. Definitely hitting at our heartstrings, but what do we think about the ending? I know James has already talked about this a bit, because now, in hindsight, it seemed pretty preachy. Yeah, I don't buy it. I don't buy that that her character would do that. The The last four minutes of that episode really bugged me out. Okay, so it wasn't just me. No. It didn't bug me initially. It bugged me after I watched it, then I thought about it, because it was purposely trying to make me feel emotional, right? So it did that. But then once the emotions died down, right? Then I was like, wait a minute, like that doesn't seem like Kira. Yeah, I don't think she would have been as friendly toward him at the end. I could see her letting him go. I, I don't. I think that she would have acknowledged and respected what he was doing because she would do something like that for her people. She she would she would commit suicide by cop for the people of Bajor. And he's trying to make right something and reveal the atrocities that Cardassia is still denying. So I think she would have been like, I respect it. Do what you got to do. And I felt like the last three minutes or whatever, they felt they couldn't do something like that or that would have shown Kira to be too... Terroristy. <laughs> too terroristy. I mean, in a previous episode, she was willing to burn down somebody's whole house yeah. to get them out. Yeah. And this was a Bajoran, right? <laughs> this is that does that's a that's a great connection because that does feed into her character development that she is trying to like move past being a resistance fighter towards that that new Bajor. Um, and maybe that's part of what they're trying to get at here. Yeah. I just, it's just, it's a little too much growth, a little too fast. Um, I've always, have either of you seen the film Blue Collar? Mm-mm. Well, it's a Paul Schrader film who wrote Taxi Driver. He directed this movie and it's it's uh, uh, Yafit Kodo, Harvey Keitel, and Richard Pryor who work in a factory and it's about unions and factory towns. And Oh, I have seen that. It does. It reminds me of the final scene, and in that, there's this sort of switch that just doesn't quite make sense, but does and does help wrap a bow around it. I recommend everyone, if we ever do a Southpaw Cinema Club, like <laughs> I, I have, I have movies, and I'm sure everyone else does as well. I think that's what I was trying to say by preachy, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Meaning. The ending, she stepped out of character to give us like a PSA, but it's like, that's not really Kira. That's like the writers giving us some PSA. I mean, it, it, it is sudden to just release the guy. He was there. Like he was <laughs> part of it. <laughs> yeah. At the very least, he was privy to it. Yeah. It's just, they, they wrapped it up in a bow and it, it bothered me. But then again, most people would agree that the first season of Deep Space Nine is, is, not the best season of Deep Space Nine. The characters will really start to get to know each other. And they're also being safe. This is really, even for back then, this is really heavy material. And maybe they felt that by forgiving him and showing him as righteous just helped push along. But yeah, the the last couple of minutes just really rubbed me the wrong way. Yeah, I guess they're trying to say something about like collective guilt 
because you know that oh, what's the matter he's a cardassian he's like no it's not enough it's like well okay <laughs> he was there <laughs> he was a file clerk to make the labor camp more efficient and i think connecting back to something that dax said and a lot of things that maritza said about you and i were the same i think it was trying to drive home this point about cycle of violence uh seemed like the theme so this episode seemed to raise two big questions that are hard to answer. And I guess the first question is, are all cops individual autonomous bastards? Or are they also just cogs of bigger systemic forces? And this is something Maritza is forcing us to consider. It's just that with roles like this, with certain cogs, some of them enjoy their jobs more than others and the system also selects for those that enjoy the job. I've pointed this out in the podcast, but also on social media, the inconsistencies of people who say ACAB because they don't all apply it universally. But even if they did, it doesn't work for all situations. I mean, if we are looking at this institutionally, then the real bastards are the highest institutional forces. Cops are just their pawns. Sure. Right. I've pointed out how some American ACABers recognize this for soldiers and also even other agency members that work outside of the U.S. Or sometimes they think those systems are good if they point their violence outside of the U.S. Now, why they have a different standard for what happens outside of the border than within, there are mm. BIPOC scholars yep. who are better at dissecting that than I am. And there definitely is study of this. Mm. but. What I will add is that even progressives could hold nativist and xenophobic defaults that they're unconscious to. Mm -hmm. And believe me, many do. Yep. And another example I could give is like of Jeff Bezos. I'm sure he has warehouse managers and middle managers who are awful, but we all realize the systemic force here is Bezos, right? Not those lower level managers, right? They're part of it too, but we all think to Bezos. So we hold a different standard for Amazon than we do for other systems. So yes, right. But this episode is asking us to look at Marissa as a cog caught up in a bigger system of oppression. And that's even how Kira eventually looks at Marissa, but also how she looks at Cardassian's changes, that they're not all equally guilty and that they all don't have equal power in the system. So how do we look at individuals within a systemic problem? Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of what you're alluding to, where there's levels of bastardness and how much power you might have. Like Gold Ducat, who's the overseer of all Bajor, has a lot of bastard power. Gold Darheel um, has some particularly nasty and specific bastard power. So, yeah, maybe. Maybe Maritza doesn't have as much, but he's still, you know, he's part of that. Um, I mean, there is individuals. He didn't come into the situation looking to do anything but be a file clerk. And he didn't even want to be in the military, but he still did it. He's still there. Um, he witnessed these things and he still did his job every day. And he was very good at it. I guess the double standard I would bring up then, I'm not saying that I feel one way or another. I'm not even revealing what I really feel about this. I'm just pointing out inconsistencies, how 
a lot of Americans, even leftists, might think about this? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. They might agree with you here, but then if you say, well, if that's the case, then should certain ex-military U.S. soldiers go face their crimes in Afghanistan? Or should some soldiers, ex-military, have gone back to Vietnam for their crimes, right? If it works one way, it's bi-directional, right? (laughs) If Maritza is guilty, then these military people are also guilty. But I know a lot of people will say they're not. So then that's why I'm saying these rules that we have, we're not going to be consistent with them. Yeah, absolutely not. And they're clunky and they're messy and they don't work in every direction. So that's why I don't even like absolute terms like that because everybody's going to be a hypocrite. Yeah. And and like you said, when we're talking about wars, there's a lot of times the lower level people will mostly get away with whatever they do because they weren't in charge or whatever, or they'll be made into examples like the people in the Abu Ghraib scandal um like uh, it's just a few bad apples you know it doesn't go all the way up to rumsfeld as a systematic uh policy of torture it's like well really i mean there were ex-prison guards um of private prisons in the u.s they didn't come into this like they learned the from these systems and then you also have situations where it's like when we had the draft right then you could make a case and be charitable and say, well, some of these people didn't choose to go off and be forced to kill people, right? Yes. But then nobody is forcing you to do sexual assault. Yep. Yet we all know U.S. war and interventions are full of sexual assault. I would say 99.9999% of these sexual assaulters never faced any punishment for their crimes. And that's on them, right? And these imperial cops much like domestic cops, have their own thin blue wall of silence. They have each other's backs. They follow their own laws. So this is another reason why their crimes go unpunished. And just like domestically, BIPOC victims never get justice. And instead, they're victim blamed to say you need these types of cops to police you because you obviously are not fit to govern yourself. So then what do we think about that, right? Like, even if Americans, or you consider yourself a leftist and it's like, I've put away all the baggage of how I was before. It's like, nah, dude, you probably still have a lot of nativism and like US nationalism and even, you know, certain white supremacy because others, those not of you, you're okay with punishing. Others, you're saying it's okay for you to say they're all bastards. Or if it's domestic, people harming you domestically, one of your own, then they're bastards, right? But then when it is your own harming others outside of the border, then you see these reactionary tendencies coming out. And I think a lot of people don't reflect on that. Yeah. You know, sometimes in these circles, I I get a little trouble because I don't prescribe, subscribe to the ACAB model. I'm much closer to the defund the police model or refund the community model and models of that nature. Because at the end of the day, yes, a lot of the people in these systems are also in some ways oppressed. And yeah, I I think it opens up a, a more interesting dialogue, except for except for Par Patrol. They're all bastards. <laughs> Here's the thing, right? Some people might look at your stance and be like, oh, you're not going far enough. 
But actually, the reason why you're doing that is because you want to stay consistent, right? You want to just be like, I'm like this overall. I want to be restorative, right? Right. Whereas a lot of people who might attack you for that, they're not being consistent. Sure. And then you look at how they're being inconsistent and they're actually oftentimes much more problematic or might have racist tendencies that you don't. I, I hope so. I like to think that, you know, like that's that these are my values. These are the things that I spend a lot of time thinking about, reading about. But I believe in restorative justice. I believe in restoration. I believe in prison abolition. I believe in changing these systems because the system, these systems don't work and they must be changed. And I, they're just the, the ACAB trademark thing just doesn't work for me. Is it, it just doesn't. And not like, oh, I know some good cops or like blah, blah, blah. It's just it's just too absolute. It's it's too absolute and just the the growth for it just doesn't it doesn't work for me. I don't know. With the ACAB stuff, I, I guess I've always thought of it as it's an attack on the job as more than the individual. Like they can cease to be a bastard, quote unquote, if they stop doing the job or if they quit or whatever, but because it's it's more the role than what any individual and yes they like you said earlier they do self select a bit more but i don't disagree with anything you said like i i also believe in restorative justice it's just um the way that the police are set up right now that's not really their their role i think you indirectly raised a good point in that you don't necessarily need theory, but like with these terms like ACAB, and that's just an example. But I think in general, when you think about your politics and these slogans that you say or these maxims that you stand by or these seemingly beliefs that you expound, I think it's important to sit down and reflect and think, what do I really mean by this? And this is something we talked about in previous episodes where Scott himself talked about his own dark night of the soul, where he had to think about his own values. and. Right. Are my thoughts my own? Are these beliefs? Do I even believe these beliefs? What do I mean by these beliefs, right? Mm -hmm. That's something more from like regular philosophy and also from therapy. Yeah. <laughs> and I think those are things that leftists can also apply that maybe, you know, you can't learn everything just from other leftists. You can pull from other disciplines. And I think it's important to reflect on what you actually believe. What do you mean by these things that you say? These things that you've heard, what does that mean? When you hear something like ACAB, are you talking about each, every individual, or are you talking about that role? And is that role, right, specifically cops, that job, or is that also a metaphor? Right. A lot of times, people saying a lot of the same things are speaking past each other, not even realizing they're talking about different things. Yeah. It's not just about theory. It's also about reflection and self-reflection. Which is why I also use the defund as the language of that, because as a symbol, that works for me better. It gets to the point that you're trying to make better than ACAB. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, <laughs> I keep thinking about the the bad actor drunk guy um, coming up and stabbing <laughs> him just for being a Cardassian. It's like, I mean, I get that he's an old man and he wasn't good at dodging the stab. But uh, I guess Garrick has never uh, been attempted stabbed by that drunk dude because he lives on the station. 
I know. I thought about that and I also thought about Odo's right there. Yeah. If he's <laughs> just as bad as we're supposed to think he is, why didn't you just stab him too? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's holes. Now, going back to what we were talking about with it ending preachy and to be fair, because it's raising another question, which is hard to answer, which is what is the path forward? I think this is easier to solve in fictional works because it can never be as messy as real life. But also fiction is much more black and white. Here are the good guys and here are the bad guys. But in real life, not only is nothing that clear cut, but also as we talked about in past episodes and what we just talked about, our beliefs can be manufactured. So there might not even be a clear agreement on who is the oppressor and who is the victim. Or as we've seen in history, but also the colonial history this episode has alluded to, the popular opinion can be that the oppressors were the good guys, other than the Nazis, of course. Right. So this episode is saying, well, you can't just keep hating and killing. But it's not simply about stopping the violence, but it's also about justice. And what does that justice look like? And when you don't have agreement on that, the violence will continue. Of course, asymmetrically, because you never have two parties with equal power. Also, hating and wanting to kill and hating the person killing you are also not the same. So the problem isn't that there's violence. The problem is that there is no agreement on what does justice look like. Yeah, I think they were the writers were definitely playing on those cycles of violence, probably in response to Yugoslavia, the civil wars, um, they're probably also alluding to Israel-Palestine. Um, although, you know, who knows how directly. Um, and, you know, could also be looking at any number of ethnic conflicts in the world. Because it is supposed to be like the Federation's the U.S., according to the writers, and then Bajorans and Cardassians are some other group that hates each other and have been, quote-unquote, fighting for thousands of years, quote-unquote. <laughs> is there anything that we've missed that either of you want to bring up? There is a very short scene that they slipped into this episode that sets up a major plot point for the next episode. Just so you know, so you can look for it. It's very short. Is it with a certain guest star that we saw briefly? Yes. Very briefly. Sometimes you see a guest star and you're like, this isn't like an extra. This is an actual guest star. Right. <laughs> yeah. And uh, sometimes I uh, actually forgot that that person was in it until I saw it. I was like, oh, right. That's this episode. Well, this about wraps it up. Thanks for coming on the show, James. Is there anything you're working on that you wanted to plug? Uh, so I'm working on turning my dissertation into a book uh, uh, that'll explore radical involvement in organizing sports, particularly in labor in the 1920s through 40s. Look out for it from Rutgers University Press in the next year or two. Awesome. Do you have a working title? Yeah, it's the same one as my dissertation, which is Strikes and Strikeouts, um, Sports and blah, blah, labor sports <laughs> n n in the United States, 1918 to 1950. My book is called Strikes and Strikeouts, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Sometimes I have to look it up, to be honest. You know, when you have like 
the colon and then you have like a subtitle, yeah. <laughs> then I can see how like your own title can be hard to remember. Yeah. Strikes and strikeouts. That's the main thing. Well, thank you all for listening. Remember to give the Southpaw Network a stellar review wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like what we're doing, support us on Patreon. You can find all pertinent info at southpawpod.com. Scott, what are we watching next week? Next week, we are watching the season finale of the first season of Deep Space Nine in the hands of the prophets. Until then. (laughs) 